Tonight we're going to talk about work. Who's excited about hearing a sermon about how you should work a lot harder? Uh, yeah, me too. Um, we're going to talk about work tonight, and here's what... And you know, every, I hope that every week we're considering something serious. Um, I, I beg of you, I know I can be long-winded, and... Um, at times, I, I beg of y'all to pay attention tonight especially for this reason. The main reason you're at USC is work. That's the main reason most of you are here. Actually, probably all of you are here. Uh, Schoolwork, college, within the last uh, 60 to 75 years has become kind of formal education for the work world. That's what it is. So the reason you're here is, to, is in preparation for labor, in preparation for work. So this is your work, and this is your labor. And, um, and you're going to work your whole life. You're going to sleep about a third of your life, maybe a little bit less. Um, so boom, a third of your life chalked up to sleep, right? You're going to work for more than a third of the hours that you're awake for the rest of your life. And if you don't have a theology or if you don't feel like the Bible or, do you th- or don't feel like it has a purpose or there's a doctrine for understanding it, functionally what you're doing is just doing something you don't understand for anywhere from 30 to 60% of your life. So I beg of you just consider and hear what the Word has to say about work. And work is more than simply your job. It's also your household. It's also your yard. It's also feeding your family. It's also laundry work is beyond more than simply whatever you get paid for. It's all the different ways that you care for your life, for your family, for those around you. It consumes most of your life. So please, please, please hear what Scripture has to say about it and consider the significance of it. I'm going to read these verses on here, and then we're going to jump around in Proverbs tonight, but I'm going to read these verses to lay a foundation. 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Proverbs 10.26, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes is the sluggard to those who send him. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Colossians 3.22-23, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Pray with me. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we pray tonight as it speaks to something that we will spend most of our life doing. I pray that we'd be willing to be shaped by it, dear God, that You would teach us. Your Holy Spirit would attend to the things that come out of my mouth, and if I speak error, dear Lord, it would be removed from our minds and our hearts, and You would teach us. You would teach us, dear God. We need You to be with us. In Your name we pray. Amen. A question I ask a lot around, some of you have been asked this question before, and it's kind of, I try to get at fundamental things with this question, is I ask from time to time, why did you come to college? Not why did you come to USC specifically, but why did you come to college? And essentially I've heard two answers in my four years here. And both of these answers are honest. They really are. And both of these answers are my answers. 
for why I went to college? And the first answer, which is it's less thoughtful, but nonetheless it's very honest, it's, I don't know, that's just what you do. And I appreciate the honesty of that. That's why I went to college. I had no idea why I went to college. I just know that if you're 18, you graduate from high school, and you kind of come from a community that has the means for you to go to college, you just choose a college and go. And in, some, in, in so many different ways, that's, kind of, that's a really sad answer. Uh, because you devote four years and tens of thousands, if not $100,000, to something you don't even understand why you're doing it. Four years of your life to something that you have no idea, you just went because everybody else was going. And the slightly more thoughtful answer, and, all, and at the same time still very honest, is this. And this is the other answer that I probably get more than the other is, so that I can make more money. A college degree equals a higher pay grade, which actually isn't necessarily true anymore. But that's why, those are the two reasons I've heard people articulate, those are the two reasons I articulated why I went to college. This is what you do, or so that I can make more money. And a thousand different ways those are sad answers. And, the, and Christian teaching on work hasn't been very helpful. Um, there are kind of two things that maybe you've heard when Christians begin to teach on work. And the first thing that's often taught is this. Whatever you do doesn't really matter. Just make sure you're a good person when you do it. Whatever you choose to do in life, it doesn't really matter. Just when you do it, do it with character so that you'll have a testimony so that people will see you and, um, and they'll think that you're a great person. And at best, that kind of teaching is halfway helpful, and at worst, it's unchristian and unbiblical. At best, the best incarnation of that kind of teaching, like, it doesn't matter about the work that you do, just be a good person when you do it. At best, that's halfway helpful, and at worst, it's unchristian. In its best form, it's kind of helpful because it's an exhortation to be a person of justice and love and mercy and steadfastness and, and kindness and patience, and that's good. But at its worst, it implies that what you're doing has no significance. Just make sure you have character when you do it. Teaching, engineering, nursing, banking, insurance, sales, sweeping, coaching, whatever it is, it implies that you're kind of wasting your time doing those things. They don't really have any meaning unless, of course, while you do it, you're kind of a good person. And in its most absurd notion, you could actually argue, well, then if it doesn't matter what I do and only that I'm a nice person when I do it, then I can do anything. I could just play Call of Duty instead of practice law because all that's important is that I do it with character. You're actually demeaning the work itself by saying it's just about who you are when you do it. And so if we say that when all we ever say about work is that when you do it, you need to be a person of character, we're not really helping. But secondly, in the worst approach that Christians have taken when they talk about work is this. There is this sacred... Holy work of full-time vocational ministries. And if you're a real Christian and take it really seriously and you're brave enough and you're holy enough, then you'll do ministry. And if you choose to do secular work, practice medicine, sell surfboards, teach, then at least do evangelism wherever you do work. Like take up the slack a little bit. Okay? I've actually heard a pastor from the pulpit say this. Christians need to be, spend less time in their office being concerned with their work and more time evangelizing their coworkers. He also said this, they should have more Bible verses in their cubicle and in their storefront. Too many Christians are spending too much time in their office working and not thinking about the salvation of their coworkers. The work in and of itself, it's less valuable, it's secular, so don't worry about it. You already, kind of, you already chose the lesser calling of not going into ministry. 
And some ministries take this approach in college as well. Your schoolwork is your work, but you're here to be a missionary, and schoolwork takes back seat to that. And this is what I want to do tonight, what I hope can happen. What I hope is that you see in Scripture that we really restore the meaning of labor and toil and work. Because what God did, what did God do before sin entered into the world? What was God's first action? He worked. He crafted beauty. We are His handiwork. God made art for the sake of just making and enjoying something beautiful. He made the work just for the sake of working good and enjoying it. That's what God did. The whole work of creation is that. Mark 6.3, Jesus was a carpenter. He didn't preach for his first 30 years. He was a carpenter. He made furniture, tools, houses, whatever it was. Do you think it was within Jesus' character to waste his time? Do you think what he did is he clocked in every day, worked eight hours a day, but really did four hours of evangelism and four hours of work, and he was lying to his employer the whole time, but he saw work as a mission field, and so he went out and preached the gospel even though he was supposed to be building houses? No, that's ridiculous. He was a carpenter. He worked just like his father did. God literally, one of the first things we learn about God is that he's a ditch digger. He's building the world. The second thing God said, last week we talked about the first thing God told mankind. He said, be fruitful, have lots of sex, have lots of babies. The second thing he told mankind, the purpose for which he made mankind, he said, build a civilization, build, populate this world, and have dominion over it. Work it. That's what we were made for. That's what humans are made for. We're made for work. From the very beginning of Scripture. That's exactly what God did when he made the world. He took chaos and he shaped something beautiful out of it simply for the sake of the goodness of doing it and then enjoying it. In Genesis 2.15, God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. And what I want to do tonight is begin to restore the transcendence of work. The transcendence of your schoolwork tomorrow. Of the homework you have to do tonight, the project in the week, the midterm, the housework in your apartment or in your dorm, the yard work you do at home. I want you to see that it's not only that, it's actually something you can enjoy, that it is transcendent, that in a right and privileged way, you're doing something godlike that your father loves when you do these things. And to get there, we have to address why we don't understand work. And so that's the first point, why lazy people and workaholics are the same. And there's this word that's used all throughout Proverbs to describe um, a certain type of worker. And this is the person who cares very little about work, someone who doesn't think work's very important, and he's referred to as the sluggard all throughout Proverbs. And the, the sluggard, this is what the, a sluggard is. A sluggard is one who sees work only as a means for affording the lifestyle they want. A sluggard is someone who sees work only as a means for affording the lifestyle they want. Proverbs 23.4 says this, Do not toil to acquire wealth for the purpose of acquiring wealth. But the sluggard only sees work. It's just here and I've got to do it so I can get to the lifestyle that I want. And of course, if that's your approach to work, then Proverbs 6.10 is often true of us. A little sleep, 
little slumber and poverty comes on you like a robber. That's one of the things it says about the sluggard. The sluggard sees work as a means to affording the lifestyle you want. That's what it's about. It's kind of this purgatory where you pay off your debt so you can get this right type of lifestyle that you want. And of course, in the context of that, what you want out of work is leisure that you can purchase with it, right? You want the leisure time that you can purchase with it. And of course, when you look at work, you'll look at it and you'll think, it literally, when it says a little sleep and a little slumber and poverty comes on you like a robber, it's this picture of these incremental small reasons that you create for avoiding work. I can avoid this. I don't need that. I don't have to work right here. I can still maintain the type of lifestyle I want. This is... Why do today what you can put off tomorrow? Because I'm working for leisure and I can just rest right now. So I'll just put that off and I can do it poorly later. It's the accumulation of these little reasonable reasons to work here and there and always seem reasonable. But the thing, here's the thing about the sluggard too is the sluggard is not necessarily a poor person. There's a whole spectrum of what a sluggard's life may look like. Because it may be that your lifestyle that you desire is a house in Aspen and two BMWs, which is awesome, right? Um, and the same sluggard says, well, I'll work 75 hours a week and practice law for that. And you see, in his mind, he has the exact same approach as the guy in the documentary Second Skin who just says, I'm just working long enough to get enough money to keep the power on so I can pay, play World of Warcraft. So their lifestyles look totally different, but they have the exact same mindset. One guy says, I want a house in Aspen. The other guy says, I just want to pay the power bill so I can play World of Warcraft. They're the exact same person. They just prefer different types of lifestyles. They're both sluggers. They both see work as simply a means for getting the lifestyle you want. And this is the reason why most of us come to school. This is why we have trouble loving class Attending class, doing the work. Because we actually don't care about the work in and of itself. It's just our purgatory. It's something that we kind of work off in order to get what we want. And this is why Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. He's not talking about the accumulation of money and things. He's saying the soul craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The sluggard is lifting for his comfort, and you can always improve it, and it's always unsatisfying. So you're always left wanting. And so you're always making the choice, should I work less and enjoy more leisure time? Should I work more to get more? You're always left wanting. Some people want to work harder for more things. Some people want to work less for more leisure time. But your soul's never quenched. But the diligent, his soul's richly supplied. And you see, for this person, work in and of itself is not important. Work is too unimportant. It's something you have to do. It has no value in and of itself. Class is a waste of time. College is about just getting the degree so you can get a higher paying job. There's no merit or anything positive to be gained by doing well or being, or being diligent because your goal is not to learn. It's not to labor well. It's not to bless or honor the Lord. It's to get what you can for you, which means that you blow off what you can. And if something or some class comes along that's important, I've got to pass this class in order to keep my scholarship so I can get a college degree to make money, then you start working hard. You're only driven to work when finally that lifestyle you're aiming for is threatened. You don't care about the work in and of itself. And work is enslavement for you, if that's the approach. Working hard, simply working hard and working lots, not biblical diligence. 
Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to forced labor. The lazy sluggard and the busy sluggard, the one that doesn't work and the one that works hard, they're actually still enslaved to their work. I have to work in order to get, whether it's you're aiming for a little or you're aiming for a lot. But the diligent is free. He's rested. He rules his own life. He's not ruled or enslaved by his work. And there's no picture, there's no better picture of the slavery of the sluggard than the cosmic levels of personal debt in this country. Because now people have figured out, I can afford that lifestyle before I even work for it. They're taking out credit card after credit card, taking out second mortgages, mortgages on our house to back cards. Because now we can, we can begin to afford the lifestyle and we'll work it off in the future. And literally, this country is full of endangered servants. They're now enslaved to the objects and the lifestyle that they've bought without working for. And they have years to work it off just like an endangered slave. That's the sluggard, but there's also the other side of the spectrum, the workaholic. And the workaholic is not working for a lifestyle. The workaholic actually looks at work and says, if I achieve here, I will gain status, I will justify, and I will vindicate myself. And so work is actually too important for the workaholic. The sluggard work is unimportant. It's just about, the me, the, it's, it's about what they can accumulate with it. To the workaholic, work actually becomes too important. It, it begins to be what defines them. And Proverbs 16.3 says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. There are those for whom their work is not committed to their Lord. The security is not in the grace of Jesus. Their work and not Jesus is their justification. Seeking establish, to establish your worth and your value and your security and your significance by your work or by your GPA or by the next midterm. They actually care about work too much or the status gained by their work And in another wisdom book, the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer says this, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. This is a book in which the writer examines all these different aspects of life, knowledge, work, relationships like that. And he goes through each of them and, he's, and, and he applies himself and he says, maybe I can find meaning and security and significance and justification in these things. And he goes to work. And here he says, if work is your justification, it's full of sorrow, it's vexation in your, in your heart at night, you can't rest. It's vanity. It doesn't give rest. These are the people for whom, that care too much about work. They're defined by it. Their days are full of sorrow. They talk about how hard every assignment is, about how much harder their life is than everyone else. Their work is a vexation. You actually never get the impression they like what their work. If you ask them, do you like what they're doing, they'll tell you yes, but the way they casually talk about it when they're not confronted with the question right on, you get the impression they hate their work. They complain about it all the time. And lastly, they have no rest. In the movie Chariots of Fire, one of the runners, if you're familiar with the movie, it's about these... Uh, it's about, what year were the Olympics in that movie? I don't know. Huh? 1924. And Harold Abraham, Eric Liddell is uh, the one runner in the movie that's kind of the inspiring, redemptive character. And Harold Abraham's this guy he runs against the whole time. And this was Harold Abraham's uh, approach to track. He said, I am forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. And he thinks about his race, and this is what he says, I will raise up my eyes, 
and I'll look down the lane. It'll be four feet wide, and with ten lonely seconds, I have to justify my whole existence. His work has become everything to him. It's become his justification. And he might or might not justify himself. He might or might not acquit himself well. That's the workaholic. If this is you, you think you're better than everybody who doesn't make the grades that you make or work as hard as you do. You're the person that panics at every test and assignment. It steals sleep and peace from you, and you really drive people nuts because you get A's every time. But tell us that you're going to get a C. So you kind of push people away with that. We're not a, a real appreciative of it. But we love you. And you can't rest. And the prospect of taking a Sabbath is overwhelming to you. And you see what that reveals? If you have no time to rest in the Lord, to Sabbath with Him, to take time off from work, you're literally saying, my value and my justification and my vindication is established by my work. It takes higher precedence than resting in the grace and the glory of the Lord. There's no more clear indication that you don't understand the saving work of Jesus on the cross than the inability to stop working and rest with Him. That is the most clearest indication you don't understand the saving work and justifying work of Jesus on the cross because your justification is in your work and not in Jesus. And so you've got to put him aside because you've got to justify yourself on that day. You don't have time to stop and rest in his justification because you don't get it. You're still trying to justify yourself with your GPA. For some of you to begin to take a biblical approach to work, you will actually get a lower GPA and a lower paying job in a less desirable location. You will be incredibly happier, but you might be getting a lower GPA and a worse job in a less desirable location. Here's the problem with the lazy people and the workaholics. I identify with the lazy people, so I'm trying not to be too mean on the workaholics, but I'm the lazy person. But here's the problem. They're actually both the same because for both of them, work is just a means of self-service. I want to provide comfort for myself, so I care very little for the work beyond what it affords me. On the other hand, I care too much about work. Work is how I justify myself. I work and I work and I work so I can prove that I'm better. I can feel value justified, vindicated. I can gain favor of the Lord, of parents, acquire status in society. Caring too much and caring too little about work both result in a heart that doesn't say anything valuable in the work in and of itself. It's valuable only in so much what it does for you. Caring too much and caring too little, being a workaholic and a sluggard, your approach to work is still the same. It's what do I get out of this? The lawyer doesn't pursue justice for the sake of justice, right? The nurse doesn't delight in the fact that you are healing. The teacher doesn't rejoice in the fact that you're spreading knowledge to children. The, sweet, the street sweeper doesn't enjoy that he enables families to re- reunite. He enables commerce to happen, friends to see one another, people to travel, to work. The engineer doesn't celebrate that his technology creates improvements for mankind. The artist doesn't even delight in the happiness of the appreciators. Rather, the sluggard and the workaholic, they don't delight in the work in and of itself. And the blessing that it can be to the world, it's merely and what the work can provide for them in terms of things or the work can provide for them in terms of significance. We're in the business of serving ourselves. So what does it look like for us to get a grasp on a biblical view of work? 
And the first thing is restoring the dignity of work in and of itself. It's what God did when he created. He crafted something beautiful. And when he did it, the the chorus line of Genesis 1 is every time he would make something, he would just look at it and enjoy it. He would finish each day of work and he would look at it and say, and uh, well, I'll read it. How many different times it shows up? Let the waters and the heavens be gathered together in one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered he called seas, and he saw that it was good. The next day he made uh, plants and trees and all that kind of stuff. The earth brought forth vegetation, yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which of their seed, each according to their seed, and God saw that it was good. Every time he made something, he just enjoyed it. That's what he did. God worked, and he actually just enjoyed the product of his work. The work in and of itself actually had meaning, simply the joy that it produced. It's a creation ordinance. God, we already said this, God made it, made man in order to work, to do what he did. And also, talking about restoring the dignity of work, simply the fact that it is valuable, it is good, it's what we're made for, it's what God does, that the work is valuable. The Bible actually also goes to links to say that all kinds of work is valuable. In 1 Thessalonians 4.11, Paul says something that's very countercultural at the time. When we read it, he says, work with your hands. Work with your hands. And that was a culture just like the culture today where, the, where manual labor was kind of a lower level, less important work. And to be a philosopher, to be a thinker, uh, to be an artist is kind of a higher form of work. Working with your hands not, you know, we would say it's, it's bad, but it certainly means you're kind of a lesser contributor to society. And Paul's saying, work with your hands, and he knows exactly what he's saying. He's saying all work is good and commendable. There are no small tasks. There's no unimportant job. I preach, right, professional Christian. I tell people about Jesus. Great job, right? We can say, that's one we can say, like, yeah, we think Jesus is a fan of that job. Okay, if you want to be a doctor, if you want to be a nurse, a technician, you work in a hospital, do you think God really likes it when sick people get better? It's most of what Jesus did during his ministry. He might have done more healing than preaching. He absolutely loves that. And you know what? Doctors and nurses and lab techs, they can't do that without a clean and sterile working environment. They can't do it without food. They can't do it without clothing. They can't do it without gasoline. They can't do it without energy. So guess what? Janitors, oil rig workers, farmers, power plant engineers all participate in that, and the pharmaceutical sales rep. Jesus loves that. Teaching. Do you think Jesus likes it when people do good things for kids? Huge fan of that if you read the Gospels. Street sweeping, do you think God likes it when transportation is made easier so friends and family can enjoy each other's company, so people can worship together, so we can go on vacation and rest, so commerce can go forth, so goods are cheaper, when policemen keep the highways safe so that all of that's acceptable? These jobs are awesome. They are holy. The storyteller, the poet, the director, musician, writer portrays truth in a way that gets to our hearts. That is awesome. Jesus was a storyteller. He told parables. The gardener crafts a beautiful setting. The insurance agent provides security for a family. The small business owner provides goods for a community at a fair price. The surf shop attendant 
guides people into making the right purchase for recreation. Jesus loves that. The cleaning lady at Disney World provided so much rest and comfort for my wife and for my family when we went there. Jesus loves that. That is a high and holy calling. It was always God's design for us to work. And the work in and of itself is good. As it's a blessing to society, to culture, to civilization, to crafting something beautiful. A Christian lawyer practices law to bring justice into the world, not to become a great and wealthy man. A Christian programmer doesn't program to be the next Mark Zuckerberg, but to improve people's lives with technology. The, the co-founder of Electronic Arts, the video game company, is actually a Christian. He said this, Genesis says that humans were created in the image of God, so all our work, not just church work, is holy. We're called to be co-creators with God of a flourishing life on earth. It is a really profound act of engaging the kingdom of God. The glory of God is humans fully alive. Work itself has, has value. It is a huge countercultural behavior to train yourself to value work for its own sake and see it as service to God. You're at school and this is your work now. You're developing the critical faculties and the knowledge base in order to labor well and to produce a great good or service for this world. You work for the goodness of the work itself and the good that it provides for creation, for society. I mean, in some ways, the appeal to gaming really makes sense in light of this. Because there's something that, in us that longs for accomplishment to complete something significant. That's the thing in us that's, that, that's the thing in us as God's image that's crying out for us to be laborers. But we're terrified of the long, hard work of actually being a hero and blessing the world. So we settle for false virtual accomplishment of gaming. Because we watch movies, and the way Rocky becomes a great boxer is through a three-minute montage, right? Four years in college is a whole lot longer than a three minutes of montage to some cool Eye of the Tiger song. It takes a lot more work. We wish it was all montages, but this is your preparation time. This is your montage, right? That was pretty cheesy. <laughs> but gaming, in so many ways, is really our false substitute of getting a, the false sense of meaning that you're supposed to get from work. From work. Because it's a whole lot easier. It's a whole lot less demanding. But actually, your net contribution to society is negligible at that point. There's a right time to recreate and enjoy You see, the reason that the sluggard is creamed in Proverbs, like vinegar to the teeth and smoke of, to the eyes of the one who sends him, is because a sluggard is the exact opposite. A sluggard is a net drain on the community and on creation. A sluggard is a net drain. Instead of being someone who blesses and is a contributor, the sluggard is a drain. They're the opposite of what God intended them to be. She's the roommate who doesn't pay her bills. She's the roommate that everyone has to clean up after, whom, whose parents have to keep making exceptions to keep her in school. She's not a blessing to the community. She's, she's the opposite of what God intended. And that's why in Proverbs 18.9, God actually says this, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The sluggard is anti-God. Work is good. Work is great. Now, how do we begin to work, not as workaholics and not as sluggards? Verse 16, 3, commit your plans to the Lord and your plans will be established. 
which is another way of saying what Paul says in Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work. Uh, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Now here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean you do things to get from God. It's not you work in order to satisfy His law, in order to get Him to like you. This is what it means. This is, this is, this is the motivation for work. You do it, and this is, this is all straight from Keller. I stole most of this sermon from Keller, but he stole it from Jonathan Edwards and Dorothy Sayers, so I don't feel too bad about it. This is why you work. is for the sheer pleasure of giving pleasure to God. It's for the sheer pleasure of giving pleasure to God. Just, cause your dad, just because he's your dad and you want to show him something you did, that's really it. You're not trying to get things from him. And this is what Keller pointed me to Jonathan Edwards on this. This is what Jonathan Edwards said. And you can't do that unless you've experienced his grace. You can't simply do things for your dad in order to show your dad that you did something cool. Simply for the, simply for the sheer pleasure of providing pleasure for him, you can't do that unless you've experienced his grace. Because you see, the workaholic hasn't understood or tasted the grace of God. The workaholic is defined and secured and justified by his or her, her work and not by God. So the workaholic never enjoys work and never does it unto the Lord. He or she works and works and works and wears themselves thins, never feeling justified, always wanting, always hating the work that they're trying to do. They're never resting. The workaholic is trying to get by work what the Lord supplies by grace. And so until the workaholic receives that grace from God, they can't work any other way. The workaholic tries to get by work what God gives by grace. So until they receive the grace of God, they're going to kill themselves, they're going to hate their work, and they're going to try to justify themselves that way, and they could never simply do something so their dad will see it and think it's wonderful. And the sluggard is pursuing rest and never finding it, avoiding work, shortcutting work, trying to get some rest, yet it's never enough. And they've never found their rest in the Lord and in His grace. Neither one of them can simply, neither the sluggard nor the workaholic can do work for the sake of the goodness of the work. They can't do it because they don't get the grace of God. When you get that you're saved by grace and not works, when you get that you are justified, you are adopted, and you are adored by the grace of God and not by your works, then you stop overworking, you stop working to justify yourself, but you also stop craving restless rest. When you get that God's grace is your Sabbath, that there's delight in Him, that He's rest for the weary, when you take taste deeply of the security of His gracious saving work at the cross and the rest that his saving work provides, then you actually don't overwork or underwork. You won't overwork because your work is no longer your justification. And to help us with that, he sets aside a Sabbath and says, stop and rest with me today. Your work is not what makes you acceptable. Rest from it today. And you don't underwork because you're no longer working simply for your own comfort. You're working to give pleasure to your dad. You work as unto the Lord. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to close with this illustration. My girls love to draw. They love to draw. They love to draw and show Elizabeth and I their art. And they actually at times love to clean their room, and they love to do their homework, and they love to pick up the backyard. 
Now, here's what happens every week. They often run to me and take my hand and want to take me to their room to see it. And they run to me and they take my hand and they take me to the backyard to see it. And they also run to me with their drawings and want me to see it. Are they carrying me, taking me by the hand and taking me to their room, hoping to be justified? Hoping that, Dad, if you see this room, I'll be secure with you? You, Will you love me if you see this room? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They're doing it because I'm their daddy, and they did it for the sheer pleasure of giving me pleasure. That's why they did it. My love is always for them. It has nothing to do with whether or not they clean the room or clean up the backyard or draw something beautiful. They are secure in my love. And they work simply for the sheer pleasure of saying, Daddy, look what I did. My love for them is never in doubt. It's never even part of the question. They rejoice in the work in and of itself. They actually long to make their art, the backyard, and the rooms beautiful. They never once think that they're justifying themselves or earning favor by doing it. They do it just because they love it and they know it's pleasing to me. Have you ever thought of approaching your classwork tomorrow that way? Do you see how freeing and restful and redeeming that is for the notion of work? And you see the only, the only thing it takes to begin to work that way is to rest in the grace of God. To rest in grace and not your work. You're secure. His law, his justice has been satisfied and he is satisfied and he's just... He's a dad who can't wait to see what you do with your work tomorrow. He gave you amazing creative and working energy, and he loves to delight when you simply just work and do something good. Work is good. Let's pray.